it comes together pretty quickly. In a recording studio, it takes a whole lot for things to go right. But it doesn't take much at all for everything to go wrong. And that's just when it comes to the people in the room. Not to mention outside pressures, equipment problems, cramped schedules, and a whole host of other issues. It's easy to feel like the deck's stacked against you when you're working on an album. But for the White Stripes, working on their first record, well, they threw the deck out the window altogether. Jack and Meg knew exactly what they wanted, and they were determined to get it. I'm Sean Cannon from Third Man Records and Nevermind Media. This is Striped, the story of the White Stripes. If you remember all the way back at the end of episode one, we left off with Steve Shaw of the Detroit Cobras talking to Long Gone John, who ran the indie label Sympathy for the Record Industry. After the Cobras' first record on Sympathy performed really well, John, uh, sensing there was something special going on in the Motor City, asked Steve if there were any other bands from Detroit worth recording. I think we both know how that turned out, but just in case... He uh, wanted to know what bands he should record in Detroit, and I told him to put an album out by the White Stripes. At the time, I was in a bowling team with Dave Buick. Jack would actually fill in sometimes well. But I, uh, once I had talked to John and made the suggestion, I told John, I'm going to send you some singles. So basically, I go back to the bowling team, which is Buick and sometimes Jack. And I tell those guys, you know, I just talked to John and uh, I think he'd be interested in putting out a, I told Jack, I think he want, he'd be interested in putting out an LP. So Steve got copies of those two singles that Dave Buick put out on Italy Records. This happened sometime around the fall of 98. And it was off to the races. I sent him in. I remember I made a really cool box. It was a striped, it was a striped record box that I packed him up in and sent it to uh sent it to Los Angeles and uh, John liked it and clearly, you know, was interested in that point on. He, he might've visited Detroit not long after. Right now you're probably thinking and understandably so, but this is the band's big break. This is what did it. You know, having conversations with the national record label seems huge, especially with what we know about the low expectations of the Detroit scene at the time. And it was huge in a sense, with an asterisk, as Ben Blackwell says here. The Sympathy deal, you know, there's band, you know, the Cobras in Detroit had done a record on Sympathy previously. Sympathy wasn't like a big deal, but it was a label that would put your record out and it would be available worldwide. What I know now, having been a teenager back then, that's kind of, I think, a fair and accurate representation of what, what they offered. Which for a little two-piece band in Southwest Detroit, that's, that's pretty appealing. In other words, having someone pay you to make a record and then have it available to buy is a dream come true. But, and there is a but, Sympathy had what you might call uh, quality control issues. I, mean, I remember hearing a story of a record store listing which labels they carried and saying, uh, Sympathy for the record industry, parentheses, only the good stuff. I mean... 
the thing about the thing about Sympathy for the Record Industry is that you know they put out so much music, and that was kind of part of their strategy. Um, the volume of records that he put out really helped sustain his you know as a business. That's Maura Johnston, a longtime music journalist and radio DJ who's currently a professor at Boston College. And she distinctly remembers some great sympathy records from uh, April March, Hole, Rocket from the Crypt, and the Headcoaties, but also remembered plenty of other releases too. They really did just put out like a metric ton of music. And that sort of just, you know, throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks approach, like for better or worse. Like, I mean, it means their batting average isn't great, but they still have a lot of very worthy records. On top of that throw spaghetti at the wall model, Sympathy didn't spend much, if anything, on marketing and promotion. So brass tacks, uh, you might be able to get your record into stores, but then there was still no guarantee it would stand out in a sea of vinyl. Plus, uh, there was something else going on at the time that might overshadow the White Stripes being courted by Sympathy. It's really, really interesting. You got to keep all this in, in your head that early December of 98, Sub Pop is swirling around the go. And this the, the, the ideas of this White Stripes, you know, recording with Sympathy, um, it's all kind of happening at the same time. But Sub Pop swirling around the go, that was definitely considered the bigger deal. That was a, a higher profile label. That was an actual signed contract. Sympathy, everything was handshake. It was just like, hey, I'll send you this check. You guys record a record. Send it to me. I'll put it out. We'll split the profits 50-50. That was, you know, that's the standard handshake verbal sympathy deal. Yeah, I know. We haven't even covered the go yet. So uh, let's back up here a teeny bit and take a short detour. This is important, I promise. The Go was another killer Detroit garage band uh, headed up by Bobby Harlow and John Krautner. They started around 1996, and then in 1998, they picked up a couple members you'll definitely recognize, the first of which was Dave Buick. I joined The Go in the summer of 98. Bobby and Johnny asked me to join The Go, um, not because they had seen me play, because I had never played before. Uh, they asked me to join because I had a nice jean jacket and they liked my haircut. And so my first show was at Alvin's in, I believe, August of 98. And our producer friend, Matt Smith, uh, he was at the first two shows I was there. He thought we needed a lead guitar player, but he, at the time, his words said that he was too old um, to fit the bill. So, but he still played lead guitar from behind the amps at the first couple of shows. And then we asked Jack if he would want to sit in for a few songs on, I think the third show I was in and he came up and did about six songs with us. And then we, you know, then he was a full member. Now with all the talk we've done about how people were blown away by the white stripes early on, it's easy to get the impression that they were heavyweights in the scene by 98, but it, it wasn't quite the case just yet. The band was picking up new fans and Jack's stock was on the rise, but... It's not like he's, he's, uh, he's commanding much in regards to uh, headlining spots and huge guarantees 
it's just like he's he's an also ran. I would say at that point, um, uh, from other people's perspectives, and that meant joining another established band with some buzz, like the Go, might be a good deal. In fact, uh, with Jack and Two Star Tabernacle, the White Stripes, and the Go in ninety eight ninety nine, some people would end up finding out about the White Stripes uh, specifically from the Go, like photographer Doug Coombe, uh, who we heard from in episode one. For me, the gateway to the White Stripes was actually the go. Um, they were playing Motor Lounge, which was arguably the time Detroit's preeminent techno venue. So I walked in and it's like mid guitar solo uh, jack with the go. And I mean, there was just this palpable energy in the room, which was cool to just walk into just hearing this amazing band. But Jack was just all his solos with the go were they reminded me a little bit of Ron Ashton and the Stooges who were these crazy solos that just kind of flew in out of nowhere and then were just really in your face and very energetic and then they were over before you knew what happened and so that was my experience walking in just seeing Jack tear a guitar solo that sounded phenomenal and I was like who the fuck is this guy who the fuck is this band Uh, another factor to consider here is that there was a bit of a vacuum by late 1998 as far as who the biggest band in the scene was. Because as Steve Shaw says about the Detroit Cobras here... We broke up in September of 98. And at the time we split up, pretty much people... It was kind of accepted that we were the most popular band in town. So there was a a little bit of a void with us splitting up. Now, Blackwell uh, had had something to say about this. I don't know if... The Cobras were the biggest band in Detroit at that time. They're definitely one of the biggest bands, but I, I, I have trouble acquiescing to the opinion that the Cobras were the biggest band in Detroit at that time. I mean, just look, the, the show I talked about, the um, New Year's Eve show uh, with Andre Williams and Two Star Tabernacle. The lineup was Two Star Tabernacle on first, then the Detroit Cobras, and then the Demolition Doll Ruts. Whichever side you come down on, I think the broader point here is that it's clear from the lack of consensus that there wasn't a single act dominating the local scene, which means it probably didn't hurt that the Go eventually did sign to Sub Pop. So that might make them seem like a a serious contender for the biggest band in Detroit at the time, because that's arguably the biggest indie label around. I mean, they broke Nirvana after all. And uh, they had support from Warner Brothers, which meant there was a machine behind them. And here's more Johnston again. Sub Pop was much more of, you know, a, a business. Sub Pop had to deal with Warner. And because of the, you know, the way that commercial radio is programmed, like it, was, it would be very unlikely for a sympathy record to get airplay on like an alternative rock station. Whereas a Sub Pop Warner release, if it was pushed correctly, could. I guess what I'm getting at is uh, things seem to be going pretty well for the White Stripes and Sympathy. But they seem to be going even better for the Go and Sub Pop, uh, both in terms of the music industry and maybe even their reputation in the city. Just keep all that in the back of your mind. It'll be important later. Uh, Trust me. So, let's circle around to where we started off uh, before taking this little detour. Steve Shaw suggested to Long Gone John that he should put out a record by the White Stripes on Sympathy for the record industry. And Sympathy was into it and said, hey, let's, let's do an album. So that's like December 98 that that kind of phone call comes through or whatever. And then by January 99, they're recording 
uh, it, it comes together pretty quickly. When it was time to record the White Stripes debut album in Detroit, there was really only one choice. And granted, there were multiple places to actually record, but uh, as Patrick Pantano makes it clear, everyone recorded at Jim Diamond's. Jim Diamond had a studio in the back of the State Theater building, and that's where he lived. And it was just kind of assumed that he recorded at Diamond's. Jim Diamond's place, by the way, was called Ghetto Recorders and used all analog gear most of which was decades old. The makeshift studio space also included Diamond's apartment, which you had to walk through to get into the unassuming studio. Patrick uh, remembers it vividly. He walked into a huge room that was not designed to be a studio per se, and there was just couches and instruments, and it was a functional setup, and he did really good recordings there, but it wasn't like, you know, a fancy studio setup by any means. It was pretty pretty nice place to record it was there wasn't a lot of pretense or the vibe kind of matched the vibe of where you might practice anyway like a lot of people practiced in basements and and little warehouse spaces and stuff and it kind of just seemed like an extension of that it's a pretty comfortable place to play most people's expectations were fairly low as far as like sound quality I mean, they wouldn't have said that at the time, or we wouldn't have said that at the time. But in retrospect, I think everybody had a similar attitude about, like, it's really the music that's important and the performance that's important. And if there was any kind of sloppiness to the to the technical end, nobody knew or cared. It was more like, are the good performances coming out of this? And I think everybody felt like they were. So everybody was pretty happy with the space, I think. Basically, it's the perfect place for a band like the White Stripes to record their first album. In typical Detroit fashion, the studio got the job done, even if it seemed a little slapdash. And as it happens, uh, that nature also translated to the actual recording session itself, which was... Not very long, a a handful of days. Um, We've got a receipt that's, I think, maybe three or four days in the studio, um, probably like eight-hour days. Um, So not very long. It's it's a ghetto recorders at that time is in January. It's the last time you want to be in ghetto recorders. It's cold. It's amenity-free. It's uh, It used to be a chicken processing plant. And so the, the control room of the studio used to be the walk-in freezer that was filled with all the dead chickens. This no-frills, jam-packed vibe suited the band. I mean, uh, they'd done their first two singles in the front room of Jack's house, after all. And if anyone would remember that, it'd be Dave Buick, who was around for those singles, and who was around a little when Jack and Meg were at Ghetto Recorders tracking their LP. I went in, I wasn't there the whole time, but I stopped in throughout the whole process. And uh, yeah, I mean, they were just going through recording and recording and recording. From what I remember, it was, you know, basically like not a lot of change had changed since, you know, when we recorded the singles um, at Jack in Jack's front room. Like it was just, you know, kind of live and 
It just was, it seemed, to me, my memory was it was just, you know, very similar to the the living room recordings, only it was in a proper studio with uh, a proper mixing board and, you know, a bunch more equipment lying around and, but very much the same, just in a different setting, you know, just real live and of the moment and not a lot of, you know, overdubs and stuff like that. Our old pal Johnny Walker, who again is the only person besides Meg and Jack to appear on the first album, recalled the whole thing feeling similarly uh, straightforward and nondescript. I was like in med school at the time and he called me up and asked me if I wanted to come and um, record at, at Jim Diamond's. And I was like, well, of course I do, you know? I mean, that's a, that's a no-brainer. And um, so I drove, drove up and laid down my tracks and I hung out for a couple of days and went back home. Um, and that was the long and the short of it. Okay. Uh, you, you have this low-key, short, but also intense and constructive self-produced session. And what's the end result? Sure, we can listen to it and hear the result, but I, I mean more like, how did it turn out for the band? You know, as far as their goals going into the studio. Here's Blackwell again. You know, Jack had said he didn't want it to sound too clean. He didn't want it to sound like a studio. Um, he was very, very confident in how he wanted, uh, he wanted it to be raw. He wanted it to sound like a Detroit rock and roll record. Um, you know, so taking inspiration from the Stooges and the MC5 and the Gories, that is the, that is the mindset they're coming from. But I think what, what he brings to the table that kind of, helps the band um, progress beyond their influences in that regard is he brings a, um, a more songwriterly craft to it all. Um, he can do acoustic songs. He can write a hook that isn't all bombast and fuzz pedal. Um, you know, they're, they're covering Bob Dylan, One More Cup of Coffee, they're doing St. James Infirmary Blues, which was learned from uh, a Betty Boop cartoon with Cab Calloway on it. So these are, it, it's, it's very disparate in, in regards to, you know, Jack saying, this is our Detroit rock and roll record, our quintessential. Yes, I, I do not argue that. But I would say you also have a song like Sugar Never Tasted So Good, which is just pure confectionery pop song it, it has there is nothing that connects sugar never tasted so good to the mc5 or the stooges or the gories or any rock and roll band it sounds more like paul mccartney or the kinks sugar never tasted so good sugar never tasted so good sugar never tasted good to me yeah you know, uh, Blackwell has a pretty practical theory as to why there's such a wide swath of, of vibes and styles on the album. I, I look at that record and think, Jack goes into the studio and thinks this might be the only chance I ever get to record an album. That's what it looks like to me. So it's like, I don't want to just write rock. And, I don't want to just put rock and roll songs on here. I don't want to just do pop songs. I don't want to just do cover songs or blues songs. Um... I want to get a little bit of everything in there. I, I, I mean, there's 17 on the CD, which is kind of what we, we view as the, the canon um, 
release. Um, I think 17 songs on the CD. But I, I got the vibe of, of Jack thinking, I just want to put this out there and it exists. And maybe it'll never go anywhere, but at least I represented the full spectrum of what me and Meg could do. Water never tasted so good. For Dave, uh, hearing the record once it was finished and being able to palpably feel what it represented, you know, the, the band's big shot on a bigger label than the one he ran, it had him amped. I just remember being excited for it to reach a, you know, like a bigger audience than, you know, what I was able to, because I'll be the first one to admit that I wasn't the most... Uh, I wasn't the greatest at mail orders and whatnot. Um, I was, so I was just excited. I mean, it, it, to me, it sounded just like an extension of the two singles we had done. Um, so, you know, I, I was already, I was already hundred percent on board and, you know, even before they played it for me, I was familiar with the songs live and I had an expectation of how I thought they would sound. And when I heard it, they sounded, you know, as I expected, which was, you know, phenomenal and otherworldly and you know just great and blackwell had a similar sentiment as far as the sound of the record i remember first when first hearing the recordings or rough mixes or whatever it sounded right it sounded appropriate it didn't strike me as what is this you know it sounded this is how the band sounds this is how the band should sound on record you know comparatively to considering their first two singles as well i think it was all um, a natural progression. Hearing the album itself at the time might not have surprised Blackwell, but there was one thing about the ghetto recorder sessions that did, although the surprise wouldn't come until about 20 years later. When we pulled out the reels, the multi-tracks just recently, and, and had them transferred, I was shocked at how many alternate takes were on those reels. That might not seem shocking on its face, but this is all analog, which, as we've talked about before, is not a fast or cheap process. And remember, they don't have a lot of time in the studio either. They're recording to two-inch tape, and they're mixing to quarter-inch tape. Um, that tape is probably the biggest expense, the biggest physical expense over, you know, the, the hiring fee, the rental fee of the room, um, which seems like you would think once a take was good enough that you'd just move on to the next song. Um, so the fact that there's songs with, you know, some have one or two alternate takes, uh, that's pretty, it's surprising. With all this talk about the sessions and the alternate takes, you know, it, it'd be downright mean if we didn't at least share a little bit of that with you right now. So this right here is an alternate version of the song Screwdriver. Uh, which is particularly interesting because the album version was actually recorded at Jack's house, but this one happened at Ghetto Recorders. And you know, you can hear this and a lot of other outtakes if you head over to thirdmanrecords.com and get your hands on the White Stripes 20 vault package.
total, there were 37 full takes for the White Stripes' self-titled sessions. And like Blackwell said, it's surprising they could actually get that many out. But one word that was almost always used to describe Jack White around this time uh, was prolific. So it's understandable. I mean, he's in three bands by January of 99, after all, writing songs for other bands at different points and playing shows a, a lot. It dawned on me digging through my archives. Um, I started pulling out these different set lists and I realized like, holy shit, Jack played in like a crazy number of, of bands, one-offs or multiples or whatever in the year 1999, just in the year 1999. So what, what I came to was the ones that everyone would know, which would be Two Star Tabernacle, The Go, The White Stripes. That's three right there. And then a somewhat lesser known, but we've put out records by Jack White and the Bricks. Okay, that's four right there. Jack and Brendan played a duet show together. Then like a month later, Jack and I played as a two-piece, and I have no memory of why we did that. It was like he just said, hey, let's play a show, me and you. Then we did um, this band called the, the White Walker Trio which was me, Jack White, and Johnny Walker. And then uh, I found a set list uh, elsewhere uh, in my archives that Jack and Brian Muldoon played a show as the upholsterers. There was a private party at the Gold Dollar, and this was probably August. I don't know if they played any other show, like back in the day when they were still both upholstering. I don't think they ever played... Maybe they played one show. So this might be like the only time they played and whatever. We've, we've got a, a written set list as, as the example of that. Uh, not much else. But look at that. That's eight different musical groups. And that's not even to take into account. In November, Jack would do a kind of an, a command performance in the Garden Bowl Lounge. A lot of stuff happening in the Garden Bowl Lounge. He performed solo. He did songs with Dean Fertitta. Uh, he, he sang a song uh, with his dad. Uh, and then he uh, kind of ended with, like, The Bricks. Now back to the story for a second. While the Ghetto Recorder Sessions happened in January of 99, you could almost look at that as a holdover from a previous era, uh, in the sense that Recording the self-titled album was, you know, the culmination of everything we talked about up to this point. And I make that distinction because when you look at everything that's getting ready to happen from January on, you can make the argument that 1999 is the most transformative year the White Stripes would ever have, which is saying a hell of a lot. I don't know if anyone's ever said this or put this theory out there or just connected it, but that's ultimately the best thing that could have happened, that had to happen. If that doesn't happen, the White Stripes don't get to be Jack's focus. Now. I call 
You're going to have to wait until next episode to find out what had to happen for Jack to focus on the White Stripes. Because that's all we've got this time for Striped, the story of the White Stripes. I want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production assistance from Mark Charles and Kojin Tashiro. And additional scoring in this episode is by Lone Wolf Gang. You know, the biggest thanks of all, though, goes to the White Stripes. Because without them... None of this would be possible. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. See you next time. Jack and I kicked around crazy ideas, um, like for not just musically, just in general, um, like for the, the first Soledad Brothers, uh, album, uh, cover is, um, an homage to, um, Thelonious Monk's last record, which was the underground record. And, uh, in the, on the Thelonious Monk album cover, he's in like a barn, and it's French resistance style and there's a a um a Nazi soldier tied up in the corner and there's you know like a, a machine gun on the table and some hand grenades and there's like stuff all over the cover so so I was I was in Cincinnati and I was driving around putting together all the stuff for the album you know and one of them was the goat's head that I left on his couch like I snuck in with the, my key and left it on his couch and he called me he's like Hey Johnny, someone left a goat's head in my my house on the couch, and I just started laughing. He's like, "It was you, <laughs> of course it was." <laughs> so so that's a taxidermy I left on his couch, and that ended up in the the picture. But um, I was driving around with my van with like all this crazy shit in the back. If I would have gotten pulled over and searched, I'd have been in big trouble. I mean, there was like there was dummy hand grenades and uh, like. American flags and I somehow found a big map of France and uh just like all kinds of weird shit was in there, you know. And then I was like, what am I gonna do about the Nazi soldier in the corner? And I'm like, I'm gonna uh I'm gonna get an Uncle Sam costume. I had to rent an Uncle Sam costume. So there's an Uncle Sam costume back there <laughs> for a while. And I couldn't find anybody that was tall that would do it. I was gonna get um Dooley Wilson to do it because he's real skinny, you know, and gaunt. So I thought maybe he would be, he didn't want, he's like, I'm not dressing up like no goddamn Uncle Sam. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. So I asked Jack, and he said, quote, it's always been my dream to dress up like Uncle Sam. <laughs> and he wasn't shitting either because um, when we went to do the photo shoot, we did it at my friend's place in the cast corridor that I was telling you about and it was like totally trash the building was totally trash it was perfect and we set up the whole scene like the Thelonious Monk and everything was set up in same spots and everything and um 
So I thought we were just going to take the Uncle Sam costume over there and Jack was going to change into it. And like, no, he wanted to wear it all day. So he was wearing that motherfucker all over Detroit that day, which blew my mind. Like, <laughs> we went to a gas station. And he's like, stop here. I want to go in and get a pack of smokes. So I'm like looking around. I'm like, he's in his Uncle Sam costume buying smokes at the gas station. <laughs> and they must have been so confused. Because <laughs> it was like, it wasn't 4th of July. It wasn't Memorial Day. It wasn't anything like that. It was just an average weekend day. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was kind of fun. 